we actually just think we should just be good at relationships. We don't even get a lesson on it. I got zero lessons on it, and I went to Catholic school, so I actually started with negative lessons, you know? <laughs> and I was taught that there was a giant white guy in the cloud with a beard that would decide if I was a good guy <laughs> or a bad guy. Like, it's so stupid, and you don't get to find out till you get to the gates. Like, how dumb is that? So much of you, even of our perception of self is externalized, that, that God is outside of you. But anyone who's experienced love, I think it's Alan Watts who says, uh, ask anyone who doesn't believe in God, (laughs) ask them that when they're having an orgasm. (laughs) Uh, When we stop running from our challenges relationally, that's where the gold is, as you said. I mean, I I think the challenge culturally is that we are taught to avoid conflict. We're not taught the skills to build bridges. We're not taught the skills to deepen relationship. We're taught that if someone has an opposing view or an opposing way of being, that they're just wrong. Hi, welcome to the Pretty Intense Podcast. Today on the show is Mark Groves. He's a speaker, writer, and motivator. I've been following his work for years. He talks about relationships from all perspectives. Today, I tried to get into some spaces maybe that he hadn't, I hadn't seen videos on. Like if you want to know about gaslighting and if you want to know about, um, you know, ghosting and things like that, like he's got videos. So we got into some different stuff. We got into some masculine feminine. We got into some purpose. We got into what the role of a man and a female is we got into and then like at the end we start started talking about a stuff that's really just more curiosities that he has within himself and but the funny thing is and this is why i gotta listen to the whole thing is that there is no separation between the work on the self and the work on anything else and like our world will change when we change and so we just talked about all of those interesting ways and um, how we can change within ourselves and ways that we can do it. And then of course, how that may show up in our world and maybe some of the areas that, that need it most. So um, I had a lot of fun with this episode. And of course, if you love this podcast, please hit subscribe. Uh, let me know in the comments what you want to hear more about. Hey, nice little blast from the past. You get to hang out at home. You know, I guess maybe the the happy and sad thing is that I've spent many, many months here. I've had to recover from many, many heartbreaks. I've, re- I've, I've just spent many months here. So I like truly have my own room here and my own stuff. <laughs> um, but I guess it's good that you have somewhere you can go, right? Totally. I every time I go back home, I'm always just. Uh, it's it's nice to know that you have a place to land if you need it. And I've spent a I've spent a few heartbreaks with the parents where my mom. Is like, do you want a sandwich? What do you need? And I'm like, I'm not hungry. You know, I feel like <laughs> miserable. I bet. Yeah. Oh, I've been there where mom's like, you have to eat. I'm like, I don't deserve to eat. It's so sad. <laughs> She's like, you have to eat something, which is like rare for me. I'm one of those people that can just like, no matter what, I'm. I don't forget to eat. Um, yeah, yeah. Heartbreak. That's a that's a bitch. Those are a bitch. They really are. And especially how much they affect our appetite. You know, I think shame, pain, all that kind of stuff just makes it so we don't want to eat. And, you know, we're our gut isn't exactly at the time being like, well, maybe chocolate or ice cream might soothe it a little bit. But, you know, generally, we're just kind of caught in the middle of the morose nature of it and ruminating and catastrophizing and trying to make it make sense. I didn't think we'd start at heartbreak, but we're here. So why not? (laughs) What, what is it? What is it about? Maybe we start with attachment, like, right. Because it's just, 
I was, I was, I've been having this conversation with my girlfriends for years about the difference between being attached in a friendship and being attached in a relationship and how, you know, personally, like I can, if a friend does not serve me or, or they're, um, they suck up your energy and are full of problems and not solutions and, you know, just don't have same wavelength of thinking and living, you know, I'm happy to leave that, let that go. I'm happy to let that back in too, as that both of those scenarios have happened. Um, but there's this really challenging um, attachment with relationships where it just feels so painful when it's ending, or there's so much abandonment, whether it's self or other throughout it um, of emotions. Why is it that we can't approach a relationship similarly to a friendship? Yeah, it's interesting that we don't tend to have the same level of discernment, you know, or even sometimes the same standards that we would have for a friendship we don't even have for our romantic relationships. I think there's so much more going on. You know, we're not just attached to the person, which can be a really healthy thing. You know, it's healthy to be able to depend on people and know that when things are going awry in life that you've got someone you can lean on. I mean, that's a part of healthy relating. It's just when your relationship is something that completes you that you are then left or perceptionally left incomplete if it ends. You add mm -hmm. to that that we are also very attached to relational outcomes. And I wouldn't say that's only because there's something nice about having stability and knowing what the future might be. You know, there's that sort of quells our anxieties and we can maybe predict that tomorrow morning will be a little more reliable or predictable, assuming our relationship will still be there. It's destabilizing. And that's why when people fight, one of the worst things you can do is put the relationship on the line. Like if this doesn't happen, I'm leaving. If, you know, or I'm going right now, or this is over. If that's a tactic that we use relationally, there's no, there's no psychological safety. And when I say attached to outcomes, we'll think about what we normally perceive about people who break up. And I met this woman the other day who in immediately in the beginning of our conversation, she had no idea what I did for work. So it wasn't anything to do with that. She just said, Oh, I'm getting divorced. And I was like, Oh, wow. And she said, I know, like, what a failure. And I was like, Oh, no, no, what a liberation. Right. You know, I, that's, that statement right there just speaks to how we tend to perceive relationships. It's right. that if they end, we're a failure. Mm. And if we get divorced, we're seen and you see this with relational hierarchy. You know, we have a hierarchy to relational status. And what I mean by that is we say, if someone's married, they're doing better than someone who's engaged and someone who's engaged, better than doing someone who's dating and someone who's mm -hmm. dating better than someone who's single. And then someone who's divorced is sort of seen as often below that as if there's something wrong with them because they have this evidence that a relationship didn't last. And you can see the opposite of that hierarchy by the questions we ask when someone is dating. When are you getting engaged? When are you getting married? When are you having right. a kid? When are you having a second one? Right? And so that alone, this idea when someone says, why are you single? As if you're suffering from some sort of ailment that it can't be by choice, you know? Uh, all of that produces this expectation or where our self-worth or our social status is connected to our relational status. And that, I would say, is actually the greatest momentum that creates so much pain with relational endings because it's not just that my relationship ending ended, which can actually be an incredibly healthy thing. It's actually what it means about me. And not 
truthfully means about me, but what I've been taught it means about me. And, you know, if you look historically, women were sort of made more in charge or more of the responsibility on the relationship lasting was sort of centered around mm. more. And that's why women tend to have a better relational barometer. You know, is it healthy? Is it not? They tend to be more sensitive to uh, relational health and their standard for relational health tends to be a little higher. They tend to initiate divorce more than men. Um all that to say, like if you look evolutionarily, Harriet Lerner talks about this. She's a psychologist. She talks about how, you know, like why is it that women want to learn about relationships more than men? And I think if you yeah. look at anyone's social media static, uh, statistics, you'll see that that's inevitably true. Okay. And she says it's because every subordinate group needs to learn the needs and nuances of the dominant group to survive. So from a survival-based perspective, women needed to learn how to navigate emotion, especially unstable emotion, hmm. because the cost literally could be death. And hmm. so there's an immense amount of desire to learn how to dance with emotion, how to understand it. And and you think there, this might just be a, a bias, so I recognize that. They tend to be more communal too, like more communal-focused. Um, and again, I, whenever I say men tend to be this or women tend to be this, there's always so much in between too. So if someone's like, that's not me, it's not you. And that's totally cool. We're generalizing. So, right. are, you, so are you saying that maybe um, some of the weight of the attachment in a relationship versus friendship comes from outside perception? Yeah. Or are you saying perception of self? Both, how outside perception influences perception of self and the idea that outside perception should influence perception of self, which is really evolutionarily, you know, it's Gabor Mate talks about how we have two needs, the need mm -hmm. to belong and the need to self-express. And when self-expression threatens belonging, belonging usually wins. And that's inevitably like, I want to hold the same values, the same perceptions, the same beliefs as the community that I'm in, the church I'm in. the And obviously, those are all often synonymous. So if I don't hold them, then I might be seen as an other in the group and I might lose group membership. Warm summer days are here, which means soaking up the sun, swimming and eating outside on the patio. It also means making time for fresh air and fresh ingredients, like fresh Haas avocados used in Good Foods chunky guacamole, or the produce packed into Good Foods plant-based dips like the queso and spicy queso blanco, or fresh cucumber in the refreshing tzatziki dip. So you dive into fresh flavor with every bite. Good Foods dips and guacs pair perfectly with fresh veggies, but they can add flavor to all your favorite summer meals, like queso dip with a grilled burger, or tzatziki dip with chicken kebabs, or buffalo dip with grilled shrimp. Summer grilling is a breeze with Good Foods dips. Find it at your local grocery store or goodfoods.com and dip into summer with Good Foods. Think about divorces, I mean, often religions will actually exile a person from their religion because they've been divorced. And if not literal exile, it will be communal exile. It'll be everyone will talk about them. And, and so all these things shape when we're attached to a relationship, which, you know, you think about romantic relationships are obviously different than uh, friendships in that we're potentially creating a family with them. We're potentially sharing a life with them. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a lot of shared time. That's a lot of shared meals. That's a lot of shared moments. And 
that, I mean, puts a lot more weight or we might be more attached because it is more destabilizing to know your partner and your relationship might end. Um, and I think part of the biological process of processing heartbreak is the recognition that a story we thought was going to happen is no longer happening. And, you know, when they look at the research at people's brains, they light up in the same place when they think about their ex as a cocaine addict. So, right. you know, we, we kind of become addicted to them. And so part of the physiological process of losing a romantic partner is the story, the possibility, you know, we don't realize that although the story in how we envisioned it is changing and the person we're with is maybe not that person anymore, we can still create that life. And we think it's the death of the whole future rather than just the how it looks and, and part of the attachment to how it needs to look is what makes us hold on and stay static in relationship and you know mm. one of the things I've argued for a long time is is because we're so afraid of relationships ending we actually oscillate and participate in the relationship in a way that reduces the amount of friction in the relationship because we're afraid this conversation might end the relationship not seeing that that's the same conversation that also would deepen it mm-hmm. or invite it to deepen the idea that all relationships, all, are selfish in nature and self-serving. I mean, true, because you think we're always getting something from it, and you know, like even the self-abandonment is is selfish because you just want to be with them. So it's really self-serving. It's not, you know what I mean? Like that, everything is to serve the self and what you think will make you happier or feel better. And, and that's why survival-based behaviors or mechanisms that we learn from childhood to self-abandon, to people please, to even overtly individuate and become an island that never gets connection. They're all ways to protect us from being mm-hmm. hurt and also to ensure connection. I mean, most of us, till we do, most of us don't know how do I hold on to a self and be in relationship to another person. Mm-hmm. We often either put at cost our relationship to ourself for the connection to other or the connection to other uh, at the cost to self. So it's either one or the other. We don't tend, you know, we don't know how to do both. How do I yeah. hold on to me and be in love with you and allow you and me too? You know, those are, that's hard. I would imagine those are secure, secure attachment as those rare unicorns that can find the balance. And then there's the- <laughs> Whoever anx- those people are. I don't know them. <laughs> I've never met one. No, I'm sure I have, but um, the anxious attachment, which would be abandoning the self for the, abandoning yourself for the other person, for the connection. And then the, and the avoidant would be are those the sort of categories that you're implying when you say that the avoidant would abandon the relationship for the self? Yeah, exactly. You know, in are your listeners familiar with attachment theory and yeah, all that yeah. I mean, adjust? somewhat. I'm, I'm, I'm sure we get some new people here and there, but I've definitely broached it many times with different people. But if you want to give a quick overview, I think that's always great. Yeah, I mean, essentially what you're saying, a secure attachment is the sort of defining characteristic is my partner's needs or the other person's needs matter as much as my own. Mm -hmm. And so not more than my own, which would be more anxious attachment, not less than my own, which would be more avoidant. And, you know, the the beautiful thing is no matter what we might think our attachment style is, it can change. So when someone learns it, they often say, I'm anxiously attached. No, you're just prone to anxious attachment. But if you say I am, then you're going to stay in it, right? You can't identify with yes. the thing. So all of us can learn secure attachment. The re- it's based on research by Jonathan Balby originally, and they had a mom with a baby, and the mom would leave the room and come back, and then they'd observe how did baby interact with mom. It, when the mom came back and the baby was like, 
anxious, attaches to mom. It's like, ah, you know, when you leave, I'm not sure you're coming back is essentially the behavior. So as soon as mom comes back into the room, they don't leave mom's side. So there's not really a trust there. The second one, mom leaves, mom comes back, baby's like, hey, what's up? Reconnects with mom, goes back to playing. That's more secure. And the last one, more avoidant, mom leaves, mom comes back, baby's like, didn't even really know you were gone, not a big deal acts as if it's not affecting them, but internally, physiologically, they're experiencing the same thing as the anxious child. So you could think about it like Mm -hmm. anxious people get triggered by space in relationship. Yeah. Avoidant people get triggered by a lack of space. So both are experiencing insecure attachment. They're They're just protecting themselves from hurt in opposite ways. Exactly. Right. So- Yeah. You're right, though. You're dead on. Like the avoidant is uh, will distance from the relationship to protect self. So the cost is the relationship, not the self, as opposed to an anxious person is like becomes a doormat. Which kind of points in the direction of like child work, inner child work. I think there's a lot of people that don't do any of this, but is it essential if you are growing in a relationship to do inner child work, to understand your patterns, to understand um, your attachment style and all that stuff? Because it just seems like when you know, it's really part of your life. And I can remember old, you know, old times in my life where I had no idea what any of this was. And I just sort of took everything personally and it was everybody else's fault, but that's not a lot of joy either. So. Oh man, that was so me too. Like when I think about being in high school or university, <laughs> how I was normally more of anxious, secure, and then I got really hurt and betrayed, and then I became very avoidant. And you know that's why it's so easy to oscillate between the two, anxious wow. and avoidant, because you're you don't have to learn security, right? You can. They're both insecure attachment styles, so you don't have to become secure. And you know, that was when I was 19. So my attachment style dramatically changed at 19. And that was because after being experiencing betrayal, I made it mean that when I love people, they betray me. And, mm-hmm. you know, here I am, you know, not making out on dance floors while my buddies are, some of them are doing that and talking about it. And I'm like, you know, no one's in a locker room being like, man, monogamy is the best. Like I, <laughs> my partner and I, we had a deeper conversation and we found another level of intimacy. You know, like that's not often the conversation that's going on in a locker room. Um, So, you know, really very for many more decades after that. Right. And relational awareness only can't, you know, I originally used to actually be in sales, but also teach sales techniques and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, when I went through a breakup, I thought to myself, why am I so good at talking about all these things, but not my feelings? Like, that's not a skill set issue. There's something else going on here. Hmm. And so that was the beginning of my journey of wanting to understand romantic relationships, which inevitably, if you begin to understand romantic relationships, your every relationship will improve, you yeah. know, because it's just a magnifying glass of the things you don't do well. And yeah. I, I believe there might be people who don't believe what we believe, because I totally agree with you. I think any, I think people can create really fulfilling relationships without any awareness of why they do what they do. They just happen to be modeled really healthy relational yeah. dynamics. 
that doesn't tend to be the norm. And I would even say what were modeled by Disney or romantic comedies or romantic movies is, tends to be codependency, tends to be like self-abandonment, you know, like the woman's laying on the tracks or up in the tower waiting to be saved. So one yeah. is needing to be saved and the other one always needs to be a knight. You know, it's there's just so much of that bullshit that goes on in the unconscious. And even our roles that we took on in our families as kids we often try to take on in a romantic relationship. So, you know, I think both people to have deeply fulfilling relationships need to have awareness of what their limitations are and where their skill sets aren't. Because um, we don't learn this shit in school. Like, no. you didn't, you know, like I started a podcast about it too and I started writing about it because I was like, I got to learn this stuff. Like, this is more important than whether I have a sales award. I'd rather have a stable romantic relationship. You know, the interesting thing is you'll likely get the sales award. Totally. You know, like, totally. that's the irony. It starts at home and there's so much happiness driven from like your emotional position of where you're at. I think the real question with that is, is how, right? I think even if someone says, oh yeah, I, I, I want to learn about myself or I, I want to do a good job or I want to know, I mean, how, you know, I, I mean, I've been, you've been doing this longer than I have for sure, but even just my experience, you have to really be driven to excavate. You have to be driven to dig into your um, psyche and your patterns and analyze your family, which I'm yeah. sure has been hurtful yeah. at times, you know, like totally. I know I've hurt my family in the process, my parents, especially, you know, and um, um, I mean, and I always have love and reverence for them, but your, your patterns come from them. So like, what does someone do if they are hearing it and they feel like, oh, you know, I have these, you know, I'm not in a relationship or I'm not happy. And, you know, what, what does someone do to become aware? Awareness is hard. Right. I think that ability to have awareness of your awareness, right? To be aware of your patterns, to be willing to ask questions. I mean, I think the birth of awareness is asking the question or the feeling. I think there's more to this. You know, I feel like I'm tired of this pattern. I'm tired of this feeling. You know, it usually... That's kind of the crazy thing about being human. Maybe it's true about b being a dog too. I don't know. But it, what's crazy about being human is we tend to wait till we have to change or we're in some space totally. where it hurts so much that we have to listen and yeah. or do research. And, you know, you're, I think you're dead on. You know, you start to learn about your family and then all of a sudden you're like, my childhood was effed, you know, or like this yeah. was that. And you you might have anger towards your parents. And I think one thing that, allows us in the exploration and the excavation of these things is to see our parents as the children of parents because then we start to see that you know they were handed down the same thing and you know where do you begin for me it's always been following the breadcrumbs i feel like when you ask the question much like that saying is uh when the t when the student's ready the teacher arrives and mm -hmm. i think that's true you know i have had so many incredible teachers that have no idea they were my teachers uh a lot of them just from reading their books or consuming their information where i got to learn about something i was curious about and yeah. you know that that's you know your podcast is an incredible example of that and um you know we there's so many resources available to us it might be someone today gets this inkling of 
oh, inner child, what the hell is an inner child, you know? <laughs> and then they could literally just Google that and find out what that means. I think that's a beautiful thing about where we're at. In the heart of Napa Valley lays Somnium, which means to dream in Latin. The Somnium Vineyard Estate is an extension of the love and intensity that I pour into everything I do. To experience our wines, visit SomniumWine.com and use the code SOMNIUM to receive a $10 flat shipping rate. Please drink responsibly. I think you're right. I think if they're here, if you're here and listening, then this is probably a step you're taking to understand and it's um, feeding that curiosity. Okay. I want to talk about masculine, feminine. I want to talk about roles. Um, I just, I'm only, I'm just going to use myself because that's all I have. <laughs> I question all the time, like, what is, what, what is a man and a woman? Like, what is the, or a, a masculine and feminine relationship? I'm just using man and a woman because that's my situation and that's your situation in this conversation. But, you know, there's a, there's definitely usually a masculine and feminine role. And so for just ease sake of this conversation, a man and a woman. So what is that? What is, I'm confused. I'm babbling because I'm so confused about it, but like, I'm a woman, but I know I'm more masculine and I don't even know if that's something guys like, you know, <laughs> Yeah. like well, I get I mean, so confused. Like, what am I supposed to, I, I'm supposed to put some ruffles on. I'm supposed to like be quiet. <laughs> I don't know. Like, so anyway, I just really ponder this sort of dynamic, um, a lot. And now part of a lot of my life has been, it has been cultivated to be more, to be stronger, tougher, more masculine because of the, the world I lived in. Um, also the house that I grew up in, the father, I, you know, my dad, like the dynamics, but, um, but it's also a lot of, it's just me. Like I'm just an innately sort of like a strong sort of direct person. So I'm curious, we can use me as an example, but we can sort of go into just all dynamics and, um, is it, is it possible to, you know, be, is it easy? I should, should it be easy to find someone in my position? Well, first off, I'd say the origin story of you is shattering a lot of those paradigms, you know, <laughs> like you had to question what it meant and what it meant about your future in order to even like, you had to shatter those things to succeed in the way you did. So, I mean, kudos to you for that, because that, that means the melting away of identity had to occur anyways. And even what was possible for you mm -hmm. had to be completely eradicated because I'm sure people said that was never possible for you. And I think that's what's fascinating about generally our own limitations are actually other people's limitations. They're other people's fears. Mm -hmm. Even the boxes that we believe we have to fit in relationally. You know, you think of so many, I mean, obviously gender is a big uh conversation currently about what is that and how do we explore right. that but i think when we even think about it in the context of what are our roles in relationship you know there's uh you know when uh, david data does a lot of the work in masculine and feminine jonathan mm -hmm. john mm -hmm. wineland does too in mm -hmm. this idea that in every relationship there is a balance there is masculine and feminine and it 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 finds balance in itself. And so where you would say you identify more as the characteristics of the masculine, direct, competitive, all those things, um, I would say that relationally, I probably expressed more feminine. I was competitive and played sports. But when mm -hmm. it came to relationships, I definitely was 
overtly more sensitive, more the feeler, more the mm-hmm. conversation. I was the one who wanted to talk, which kind of went against all the norms we're taught. And so there was an element where I had to learn to desensitize myself. But what I found in relationship is I often dated, <clears throat> I would say exclusively I dated, women who were competitive, athletes, and more in their masculine. <laughs> and I mean, what I loved about that is they were always direct and great, you know, very, um, had a high level of self-confidence, maybe yeah. due to sports, maybe due to whatever. Yeah. Um, but I found that what would happen, and if I think about the shaping of, I grew up in the 80s and 90s, and a lot of the conversation about men, which still exists today, obviously, is that men are bad, the masculine's bad, it's race, or it's uh, abusive, it's, you know, all these different things. Um, and so I associated boundaries with actually being controlling. And so I think a lot of my desires was to be a nice guy, like to be different than the men mm. that women have been taught about. My mom's a feminist. And so, you know, there was very much like probably a desire to appease mom in the work from uh, Robert Glover, who he wrote a book called No More Mr. Nice Guy. He talks about how, you know, men in their early childhood, almost every authority figure, like their teachers, et cetera, are all women. So they spend so much of their mm. youth trying to please women. Huh. And I thought it was just very interesting, right? He Mm -hmm. talks about how, you know, so much of, like, if we don't stand up to a woman, she won't believe we'll stand up for her. Mm -hmm. And I thought that's interesting because I would say, and the reason I say all this is that if my boundary was tested, I often wouldn't stand in the integrity of myself for connection. I would people please. I I would doormat myself in order to maintain the connection. But I would say is that none of my partners could really trust me because below my inability to stand for whatever my integrity was, if I wasn't going to do that, then how could they trust what I said if I said yes too much, right? Like you were saying earlier that this mechanism of people-pleasing that offers a benefit, right? I get to maintain the connection, but it's at the cost of my actual self-expression. So all that to say a long way around the barn to get back to the conversation about masculine and feminine. I think part of the challenge that men have who are more feminine, who might express or identify as more of a nice guy, which is often unintegrated because it's kindness in order to get something. Mm. And that could be true of what we might say is the unhealthy expression of feminine. And then and I, and there's brought more conversation to that. And the unhealthy expression of masculine would maybe be the manipulation or directness or using aggression and authority. When a man is more in that sensitized state and a woman is more in the directive state, and that can be a healthy, high achiever, all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. if the man doesn't know how to stand in his own truth too, And if he does derive his power from status, from earning, from control, Mm. from whatever the role he was taught, he will have no idea how to be in relationship with a powerful woman because there will Mm. be this misconception that he has to trade something, including his masculinity, to be in relationship with her. That both can't be met and facilitated, that are actually deepened through that experience. I hope that makes sense. Yeah not talk through all those things in one moment. I've had guys tell me, they're like, you're just so masculine. You're more masculine than me. What is that? Like, what are they saying? I think when one, they don't know how to hold that energy because maybe they don't know how to express it themselves. Like they're not even sure what's in that. Mm. They might be even afraid of that part of themselves Mm -hmm. that they don't know how to be in relationship Mm -hmm. with 
a powerful woman mm -hmm. and be powerful. Like they mm -hmm. think there's a trade. And mm -hmm. also that there's an association of femininity with certain things, you know, that it has to be softness and what you said, mm -hmm. ruffles, you know, it has to be these things as if it can't be expressed differently. I think there's, that's probably a passive way of saying I'm not sure how to be around that energy. Sure, sure. And, okay. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think there's when, when overt individuation, because like a lot of what happened, let's say we're looking at the messaging from the first waves of feminism and a lot of men receive the message, right? Like don't be controlling, don't be these things. Those are all good things when we're c correcting for behaviors. And a lot of women learned for obvious reasons, don't depend on a man, don't need a man, take care of yourself. And those are all important messages too. And a lot of men saw their mothers get financially abused, get left desolated in divorce. And so they, again, are, are overtly feminizing themselves in, that, in response to that. They want to protect. They want to do all good. Those are all good things. But when a child is left to interpret this information without an adult explaining it, saying, yeah, it is important that you are able to take care of yourself. It's important that you're able to um, take care of your own needs but not so that you can't be in relationship with anyone else. Like what ends up happening when it's not explained is a woman and a man, but in this conversation, a woman can learn to never need anybody. And so that's why overt expression of the masculine can be this overt expression of mm. individuation where there is not actually a surrendering or an opening if we're using the masculine feminine language yeah. to actually receive a man or receiving another person. And so it's actually sometimes uh, guardedness masquerading as masculinity, if that makes sense. Mm. So it's protective, right? Yeah. It's guarded, it's protective, yeah. and it's a wall, yeah. and it's got a fortress around it. And You're so describing that... what I've talked about for myself. <laughs> well, that's why sometimes what a man doesn't know how to use or another person just doesn't know how to use language for mm. is you're in your masculine. And what they really might be feeling is, I don't feel like you're open. Yeah. I don't feel yeah. like there's reception to love. Yeah. Are there specific roles like that um, to people coming together? I mean, especially if, if we're looking at masculine and feminine, are there, you know, I've listened to lots of videos and like, guy, you know, man's looking for somewhere to like, you know, not be bothered. It should be easy. It should like, there's like videos like that. And then, you know, I don't really look at the women's side because I'm a woman. So, you, you know, I feel like I'm just thinking about it from my perspective, but a woman generally is looking to feel safe. She's looking to feel appreciated. She's looking to feel valued, irreplaceable, um, special. Uh, so are there, what, what are some, like a few on each side, um, core, core needs that each has? I'd, I'd say at a baseline, all relationships, and this is what attachment does. Attachment is a radar, and it's constantly going in all our relationships to say, am I safe? Am I safe to be me? Mm -hmm. And I'd say at the baseline of all relationships, romantic to regardless of your gender, is am I psychologically safe? Mm -hmm. Am I safe to express and be myself? Now, most of us have messaging from our childhood that says that's not true, so we might project that in our, mm -hmm. our relationships, there might be safety present. We might not be attracted to safety because all our nervous system knows is chaos. So really? is there certain things that 
a man needs versus a woman. I think there's so much complexity to it because like I think of how many men I know and they all have different types of <laughs> like maybe specific needs that they have. So the first I'd say is psychological safety everyone needs. Second one is I think that men as a collective, like one of the things that I would say we generally are challenged with that I think most people would agree with and most women would agree with is we're pretty challenged with conversation. We're challenged with emotional conversation. And if you think about it, since our birth, we've been socialized to not have emotional conversation and to also not be attuned to our emotions. And right. so we might have a couple acceptable emotions like aggression, especially in sports, and maybe <laughs> moderate excitement, yeah. but we're not, and sexual excitement, but we're not mm -hmm. allowed generally to have grief and we're not allowed to have sadness. And any of those things tend to be in conflict with masculinity mm -hmm. and to equate to weakness. So I think we probably, although we might not know we need it, uh, and who am I to I speak for all men, I don't. But I do think that we need some patience as we desire to learn emotional language and to learn how to communicate. Whatever age a man is, is that many years less that he's been exposed to the possibility of emotional. So it's like a totally new language. I remember when I was first trying to have conversations, I was good at sales, but as soon as it came to a conversation with my partner, it was like I couldn't find words and I would get so flooded. Wow. And I didn't know how to have the, how to put words to feelings. And that's an yeah. art. And yeah. I think no matter a person's gender, they can relate to that probably. Mm -hmm. um, and for women, I mean, I I believe that they want a man who is deeply rooted in his integrity, that they can trust his word, and that they will at least be validated in being heard, you know? Mm -hmm. I think one of the misconceptions we have relationally is that we have to agree with each other, and that is some sort of uh, sign of relational success. Uh, but I actually think it's more, can two truths exist? Because you and I can experience one situation very differently, and that is probably because it's encoded in our programming, our childhoods, our experiences in life, and both of them are true. And the job of a relationship is to actually unify those things, to allow understanding for both. And you know what is seemingly beyond two opposing views is usually a deeper truth, and, and it's usually wiser than the first two it began with. <laughs> I'm thinking about a Ram Dass quote. I'm pretty sure it's Ram Dass. Something along the lines of like, the best thing that I can do for you is to work on myself. And the best thing you can do for me is to work on yourself. Something to that effect. I love Ram Dass. Yeah, I know. So good. Um, we're all just walking each other home. Oh, um, so good. It's yeah, so good. It's so true. Um, so this is kind of a simple, broad question, but I think a lot about the nature of reality and the purpose of everything and energy and frequency and what's all happening. And I wonder what the point of relationships are. Mm. Well, I think that Ram Dass quote is so apropos that we're all just walking each other home. You know, I personally believe that the purpose of relationship is, you know, I, I think love just might matter enough to us that we're willing to look at our stuff. Mm. There's not a lot of other things that matter to us enough. And if you look at the deepest core human motivations is connection and love. And I believe that it it is the purpose and the evolutionary purpose, and I mean maybe from, from both a consciousness perspective and a personal evolution perspective, 
is that relationships, they are a mirror to the things that we're not good at. They show us where we're not free. They show us where we wear masks. They show us our potential. Like you think about everything that triggers you is really an invitation to learn mastery and the thing you're triggered about because the trigger itself is this hypersensitivity to likely a, pre- a previous wounding no. that just hasn't been processed. Exactly. Right, so like when the trigger comes forth, we vehemently protect against experiencing what we're afraid is going to occur. And that's brilliant intelligence, but what lives in the actual trigger is the information of what skill would I need to learn to at least mitigate the possibility of this happening again. And I think really when we can learn how to manage conflict successfully, when we can see that it deepens intimacy of self and other that we actually can see that conflict serves us. You know, it shows me, like, why can we not navigate a conversation and actually end up more in love? This is like Cantonese for most, I'm sure, right? Like, right. I mean, think about <laughs> it. would it. be for younger me. Yeah, younger me. And that's why I'm saying, like, to think that the conflict is the gold and the triggering is the gold and is where you can mine to use gold uh, yourself and figure things out and expose those shadows and expose those patterns that aren't serving you and um in areas where you're not free this is a this is like a foreign concept it totally is you know especially in, except for the people who speak cantonese then it's a natural you know concept and in that there are people that navigate this language and I think it's a massive revolution of relationship, you know, ultimately. Like you look at what we tend to have inherited relationally is codependency. <laughs> and, you know, like if you look up your family, <laughs> wait, you're at home. Uh, if you look up your family. <laughs> I am home t- and it's me. <laughs> same. And, you know, if you look up your family tree and really where we learn about relationships is from our families and our societies and our cultures and our movies – if you never learned how to have conflict and turn it into deeper intimacy, how the hell would you know how? The skill set is not shared, but it can be learned. And Eric Fromm, who wrote the book, The Art of Loving, he has a great quote in it where he says that there's nothing that we fail at more than love, yet don't take the time to learn. And there's sort of this arrogance, I think, to being human till it's gone, that we actually just think we should just be good at relationship. Like, we yeah. have this narrative that you get married by a certain age and you're just supposed to make it last forever. Like, yeah. And you know, didn't people even say, get a well, lesson on it. I got zero lessons on it and I went to Catholic school. So I actually started with negative lessons, you know, <laughs> and I was taught that there was a giant white guy in the cloud with a beard that would decide if I was a good guy <laughs> or a bad guy. Like it's so stupid and you don't get to find out till you get to the gates. Like how dumb <laughs> is that? You know? And so you oh, see yeah. like how much, so much of you, even of our perception of self is externalized that that God is outside of you. That, But anyone who's experienced love, and I forget who, I think it's Alan Watts who says, uh, ask anyone who doesn't believe in God, um, <laughs> ask them that when they're having an orgasm. <laughs> uh, you know, I think there's this, there is a willingness when we've experienced enough friction relationally to explore the friction. And when we stop running from our challenges relationally and actually realize that you don't have to run towards them because that's definitely going to be awkward, especially after you've been running from them. But when you start to actually just slow down and turn around and turn towards them and realize, you know, that 
that's where the gold is, as you said. I mean, I, th- I think the challenge culturally is that we are taught to avoid conflict. We are taught to vehemently disagree and just name call the other side. We're not taught the skills to build bridges. We're not taught the skills to deepen relationship. We're taught that if someone has an opposing view or an opposing way of being, that they're just wrong. And like this has perpetuated our culture and this has perpetuated our relationships. And, you know, I think we're definitely seeing that, especially now relationally. Mm -hmm. And, you know, really, I think the future for relationship, but also culturally, is we all have to become bridge builders. We all have to become the people who say, hey, actually, there's another way. And the other way is about because you if you return to developing a more sacred relationship with yourself, which is inevitably what's going to happen, you know, it's Richard Rohr who says that the journey to finding the true self is the same as the journey to finding God. And I love that because if you go to find God, you find self. If you go to find self, you find God. And, you know, kind of speaking to what I said earlier, the idea that there's a differentiation between those things is, I think, what is weaponized against us sometimes, Mm. but that's a whole other conversation. But in this return of your relationship to treating yourself as sacred is then inevitably that you will accept nothing less than sacred mm-hmm. and also what you'll share with your partner is sacred mm-hmm. and then the reverence that you'll have to your partnership will be so different but inevitably if you do that you will return to a sacred relationship to the earth and yeah. to everything it's a mirror both ways right it's it's the, the mirror to seeing how you need to change is what you then project you know and and the solution you know i speaking to the things that we are taught to avoid. I mean, we're we're taught that sadness or grief or anger, that there's something wrong with us if right. we have those emotions, as opposed to, well, what happens instead of looking at it, is there something wrong with you? And you said, what's right with me that I feel this way? Yeah. How can I be informed by that? What's it asking me to change? You know, I think that is also this idea that there's nothing to be found in the darkness or there's something wrong mm-hmm. with the darkness. I mean, Mm -hmm. I've been through a breakup that brought me to my knees and Mm -hmm. I navigated that breakup sober the first time I ever navigated a breakup sober. And I felt things that I had never allowed myself to feel, but so heavy, the richest transformations for me have always occurred in those sort of like roots to the ground demand to be felt spaces. Burn it to the ground. Right. No other choice. It has right alchemy. It's just alchemy, right? Like it's like becomes ashes that fertilize the soil for something else to come through. I agree. I think that's one of the hardest things about lessons and especially relationships is where it comes up the most. But family too, not necessarily romantic. um, Is that you really have to go through the shit? Like you have to go through that burning to the ground process, which I was, I, from my, my, my experience is I'm like, if it hasn't brought you to your knees, like you said, then it's, you know, the, the deeper you go into that sadness and that depression and the, um, self-reflection, um, the, the bigger the shift will be. And that sucks. Why does it it have to be like that? It does. You know, it's, the irony, too, is that uh, that is actually what enriches love. Mm. 
You know, like when you realize that when you love somebody, you are constantly saying yes to losing them, right? Like you're saying yes, the more you love someone, Mm -hmm. the more you are actually increasing your capacity for loss. You're actually, Mm -hmm. as you love someone, feeling the grief of losing them. And, you know, because inevitably you're going to die or I'm going to die or we're both going to die. But either way, the relationship's going to end. And mm-hmm. when we can confront that and realize that actually in the grieving of that is the experience of it. Like when I look at my fiance and I experience the, the recognition that I'm going to die or she is, this relationship will end. This experience will end then I'm actually able to taste everything in the moment. But the denial of the death, death of self, death of the relationship, is to actually deny the richness of the present. Totally. So what an invitation grief is, because grief doesn't give you a choice. And when you can see that grief is, there's a saying that grief is love that has nowhere to go. Um, Oh, yeah. And I don't know that it's meant to go anywhere because I think of like some of the most painful breakups I've ever had or painful losses I've ever had. Like they are just made richer, although it's hard to process them. uh, I don't know. I think that's probably the closest I've ever gotten to whatever might be the experience of God. How do you differentiate in a relationship the difference between the stories you make up in your head and you know, the crazy talk you give yourself and real intuition. Hmm. You have to get to know yourself. You know, there's my friend, Dr. Alexander Salman says a great question to ask oneself is, is this my trauma or my truth? And there's a vibration or an energetic to trauma and reactivity that's different than truth. And that can be hard to differentiate. I think somatic work is really important. I think like seeing a somatic therapist, learning about your nervous system, learning, because that's really what destabilizes us is when, if we've spent our lives being vigilant, we spent our lives being protective, spent mm-hmm. our lives being guarded, mm-hmm. spent our lives um, with unreliable people that we can't trust, then that's familiarity. And then what is uncertain and unknown is actually stability. And so we might reject that. And the only way to really know how to differentiate is to get to know yourself. And that's why that I think it's um, the book uh, When Things Fall Apart by uh, Pima Chodron. Mm. She talks about this principle from Buddhism called Maitri. And this principle, the idea of it is that everyone needs to become best friends with themselves. Like as opposed to this, you know, self-love and it's like bubble baths and chocolate and all these things, which are all great. And boundaries, those are definitely part of self-love. She's saying, like, actually develop a reverence for yourself. And when you do that, and I said this before, when you develop a sacred relationship with yourself, then you are able to be discerning about what, because you already know the sacred. And that takes a deep commitment to practices like meditation, like exercise, like eating well. Yeah, what do you do? I mean, like, this this might be new territory for people. What is a... What does this practice of knowing the self look like? Well, what a great first question to ask is like, who am I? I Mm -hmm. mean, isn't that sort of every philosopher's circular uh, point of inquiry? I'm I'm sure it started the same for you. uh, And it started the same for me. The first book I ever read after my 
when I was 27, the relationship that ended, that sort of made me start to ask questions like, how did I get here? Why do I do what I do? I feel like there's more to life. The first book I ever read was Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Mm. And that was the first time I ever even thought like, oh, I might have a purpose. I might be here. Wait, there's like, uh, it's a miracle to even be born. Like most of us don't even recognize that. So the journey to self can begin with what you resonate with, learning about, as you were talked about, quantum physics, frequency, learn about if you're drawn to books about Jesus, if you're drawn to, it doesn't really matter what the journey is. You know, it's, I think it's practices though that are self-reflective. Things like meditation, that was for sure a beginning journey for me. The breath work was not big when I first started, but I'd say breath work is, geez, that brings you right to the edge. Um, and cold plunging, I don't know. Mm. Cold plunging is one of the greatest practices I've ever done. I Really? I invested in a cold plunge. The company is called the Cold Plunge. And I have it at 45 degrees, and I do three to four minutes, three to four times a week. And it started with cold showers. Yep. And I don't know your experience of it, but what I found is that I was fu- I was able to differentiate between my body saying, you're going to die and freeze to death, from the reality that I wasn't. And so I was able to be the observer of that fear and that just increased my skills Mm. relationally when I'm in dialogue with someone else to be like, oh, I'm not actually, like this person isn't actually rejecting me. We are disagreeing and that doesn't mean my future and my relationships and my well-being are on the line. I was Mm. able to start exploring thoughts like that from more of an observational rather than reactive state. Um, I'm curious, what are some of the things that you did that began the journey to getting to know self? I think you nailed it with just like, just being curious and seeing a pattern and wanting to, my first question was, what is God? That was true. That was my first question. Where'd that lead you? Well, everyone answers with like, oh, well, he makes decisions and it's, uh, you know, this whole powerful being. Exactly. He's a he. I was having so many of these conversations where we've touched on here. I've been having with my mom because again, I'm home and (laughs) I was trying to explain the difference between spirituality and religion to my mom. And I was asking if she had gone to church as much. And she, since COVID, I think that kind of shifted a lot of things. And then I was like, well, I can start sending you spirituality videos if you want. She was like, well, what is like, what is spirituality? So I think it's this quest to understand why we're here, what we are, what's really happening. I mean, have you had mystical experiences or transcendental experiences, out of body, astral projecting, uh, medicine journeys? Have you have you had experiences that show you a different reality? Yeah, you know, when I was, I want to say like 19 or 20, I did mushrooms for the first time, but it was more in a it was camping and it wasn't with any medicinal intent, you know, right. I wasn't, I wasn't doing much with, yeah, I wasn't doing much with consciousness. Then. <laughs> uh, but since I've done them with intent, oh yeah, there's a study actually that looks at people using mushrooms that shows that people who have committed crimes who use them recommit crimes at a far lesser rate than people who have never had a mushroom experience. And mm. they pay Uh, some credit to the possibility that it's because when you take psychedelics, you experience a sense of connectedness, of oneness. Um, So there's that. I mean, yeah, I mean, I've had 
experiences where voices have said stuff to me that I needed to hear in the moment or clarifying things. You know, one, when I was going through that more recent breakup that I was saying really deepened everything for me. It deepened my relationship to everything. And I was sitting beside a river right after, and I saw, I mean, I saw an, a bald eagle fly right in front of me along the river, which was wild, like right in front of me. Mm. And then I saw this white butterfly flying, and I just thought, like, that butterfly doesn't really think about what it does. It doesn't, like, it's just going somewhere. I don't know it's going to eat something or die, or I don't know what it was going to do. Mate, who knows? And and I thought, isn't it so fascinating that, like, we we question everything and we actually question the purpose or mission that on some level we're constantly being invited to, you know, our voices, our intuition, all these voices that we learn to quell or to take drugs to minimize or get, you know, I think a lot of our addictions are sourced from the avoidance of the pain of knowing there's a better version of us available, Mm -hmm. a different version, Mm -hmm. a potentiality that we haven't touched. And because it's so normalized to not touch that potentiality, it's actually normal to be in a state of addiction to avoid that voice. And, you know, I think there's definitely a mass awakening to that now. Um, But I really thought to myself, I remember I just heard these words like, at what point did you think you were God? Because I was trying to force a relationship that didn't want to be born. Okay. Okay. And I was just like, whoa, that's a call out. That's a call out. (laughs) You know, like, why did I lose trust? Why did I stop believing in that the it life is just trying to flow through me and it's us who get in the way of that. And I think so much of the work that relationship offers is to show where our conditioning is keeping our behaviors the same, mm-hmm. keeping our relationships. It's normal to be in a disconnective lifelong relationship. Yeah. Isn't that fucked? Like it's normal. So fucked. And it's so normal. I was just chatting with my dad two hours ago and just talking about relationship stuff. And, and he's like, you know, most people are not happy, you know, cause I made some right. joke about being 40 and single and he's like, yeah, but most, most people aren't really happy. What kind of stuff are you questioning now? Are there, what's on your search and explore list right now? Oh man. You know, I, and it could, uh, it could have to do with relationships. Fine. Of course. I know that's a passion and an interest, but might not be. Oh no, it's gone so much beyond that. The, yeah. <laughs> but you know, I think relationship sort of touches on everything sure. that it's right. But there's only so far to go because there's only so much patterning and there's only so much. Exactly. Like actually it starts off as almost confusing and then you kind of whittle it down and you're like, oh, it's just kind of like this. Like I just look at it now and I'm just going, you know, I get what vibrationally I'm putting out there and I get what I expect I deserve. And, um, the world is a mirror for me and like, it gets kind of distilled down to some simple things. So, okay, then let's, let's talk about fun stuff outside of that. Then what's, what's a curiosity? Well, you know, I think so much of my, I think all generally, a lot of our work is derived from our own desire to want to understand the world, you know, (laughs) that I turned my mess into my message, but I, constantly have a mess so you know I've I feel like I really worked on healing codependency individually in my own personal life and looking at how do I create a relationship that is liberating Mm -hmm. and instead of being a prison where we're not allowed to leave or we're stuck we got married or in relationship and we we have to stay the same people that enter relationship Mm -hmm. as opposed to the relationship being the place that says there's more for both of you and the relationship has to keep getting the container of the relationship has to expand to accommodate 
our expansion individually and collectively. So is there a fundamental truth or a fundamental piece of information that helped you liberate that aspect of yourself out of codependency? Yeah. I mean, the recognition that my partner out of however many billion people are on the planet chooses me and she could choose not to choose me, mm-hmm. you know, and the recognition of the truth that she could leave in any moment, but chooses to stay made it. So I think one of the things that we most often do in a relationship is we assume that choosing one another today means that you can't go anywhere and marriage, especially it's like till death do us part was a common vow. And I always thought to myself, like, which death, like a mortal death or the death of the self that chose the relationship at the time. And Mm -hmm. we don't tend to have the skill sets to be able to experience the mortality of the old parts of ourselves that will occur throughout our lives if we let that happen, which just means that we're growing and expanding and becoming better people and more skills and, and all the things. And relationships have not generally been structured on the celebration of both being an individual and being together. Like there's this fear that if you grow, you'll grow out of the relationship. And so I'm going to do everything I can to try to keep you here as opposed to the more you grow, the more I grow, the more we grow. And if we're not attached to it having to be us, but that's our desire. Right. But if we're not attached to it, then we allow the free flow of the relationship to go. That's letting go, and that's just hard. <laughs> yeah, I'm saying it's great in theory, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but seriously, though, that has been the acknowledgement of the recognition that I never want my partner to ever have to abandon herself to choose us. Mm. Like, I don't want that. I would never want that for her. And the moment she ever believes that is what is required, then we are of our, we're already losing. Mm-hmm. And so can we bring even those fears or when that's coming forward to the table and can the relationship hold the truth that already exists as opposed to avoiding the truth so that we can try to stay together? You know, like we broke up and spent a year apart not expecting to get back together and then came back together and came back together as two different people, came back together um, more complete. The actual leaving of the relationship was necessary because it was the saying, we're in service of love, not the need to be together. Yeah. And and we got to experience a relationship ending with grace. I mean, I didn't even know you could do that. You know, I didn't know, you know, I, I interviewed this woman on my podcast. She's a chef. Her name's Yoda, which what a great name for delivering wisdom. And she said uh, that she got the advice once that you should leave a relationship as you leave a house, like fix it up for the next owner. And I thought, what a beautiful concept yeah. that yeah. that actually to be in service of love yeah. is to leave sometimes. Hmm. You well, know, that that I've is I've taken actually, all my shit before and I've left a lot of shit, so I'm not really <laughs> sure what my pattern is, but <laughs> Well, don't we all, you know, but it's it's like can like when we our relationship ended, we did a closing ceremony. Yeah. It's amazing. I'd never done anything like that. We lit a fire. I looked up closing ceremony relationships. Some other people had thought about this before. They probably lived in Encinitas or Sedona. And I, uh, and I, with that book, what is it? Uh, Conscious Uncoupling. I think that was the beginning of, I forget which relationship. Gwyneth Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Catherine Woodward Thomas, I think is the author, something like that. Um, But we did that. And that was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. But it was one of the most deepening. Because we just spent the time thanking each other yeah. and having gratitude. 
Um, so with all that said, yeah, the evolution of healing individual codependency to looking at collective codependency, I'm very fascinated by cultural patterns that are occurring right now, which is that you know, we have created these camps, no matter what the belief is, that it's you're either this or you're that. You're, there's no conversation anymore, and we've yeah. canceled dialogue. We've mm-hmm. actually, in a lot of ways, I think that our world has continued to accommodate and oscillate around the people who have the lowest capacity for discourse and the most emotional mm-hmm. reactivity. Mm-hmm. And because of that, because we've sort of like allowed that experience to dictate what we can talk about and what subjects are okay to talk about. Well, as soon as we stop dialoguing about any subject, we stop deepening our understanding of it, you know, and, and for the, if we make all of our dialogues oscillate around the fear that we don't want to hurt someone's feelings, then we will never have progress, you know, because you and I, as I said earlier, experiencing a situation differently the goal of and success of navigating that is not agreeing. It's that we actually both can ex- coexist and find some deeper truth that lives beyond our own individual one. It's kind of like politically. There's the left, there's the right, there's the blue, there's the red, there's the pro, there's the anti. There's, But the yeah. truth exists so much in between all of those things. Yeah. You know, and, and so I'm my questioning goes to why, where does that come from? How do we resolve it? And I think that if we stop having conversations that are cancelable, then we are participating in the cancellation of that subject. Mm. And, And it's so easy to do that because really what continues to be weaponized um, against people is belonging. That if you don't agree, you don't belong. And I'm going to, like, I believe, I agree with accountability culture, um, but I'm, I also am in total uh, support of restorative justice, not cancel culture, you know, and because cancel culture has permeated itself through everything, it's made it so people are self-censoring, they're not sharing their truth, they're not sharing what's real for them, because they're afraid they won't belong anymore, and what happens is, is we have the illusion of consensus, so everyone pays the price. And so that has been a real, because I think of what is the cost on relationship for that? Well, we have a bunch of people in relationship together who are just appeasing each other. And I personally uh, don't want to participate in that type of family, that type of culture. I want to have hard conversations because I know that they are imperative to, to just human progress. So is this fixable on the outside? Meaning, is there some sort of, let me just say it more simply. Do you think that this is an inside job to be solved? Meaning it's all within the individuals to fix the self in relation to a partner, to the planet, to others, to people that are different or that disagree. Is it an inside job that actually fixes the outside or is there actually something that can be done? Because I think that's the problem is I think that people think that they can kind of scream from the mountaintop something or hold a sign up and like it will change everything, but that's kind of on the outside going in. Like you're trying to impress something upon somebody and there might, you know, there's arguably some benefit to it, but the truth may lie in the inside job. 
Yeah, I, what a great question. When, when we have uncertainties around our own position, and I think religion really speaks to this as an example, mm-hmm. part of faith is not questioning. And so in doing that, you're already teaching people not to question. And so the, how that permeates our schools and our academic institutions and just our authoritative structures, political media, all the things, is that especially, I think, recently, we're not allowed to question anything. And if you question things, then you're seen as being selfish or being in the way of some form of progress. Mm-hmm. And as where the perception is, is that opposition is actually halting progress. I think what we really need to look at is that all of us have conflicting thoughts within ourselves. Beliefs have become so uh, intermixed with our identities that challenging our beliefs is challenging psychologically our identities. And so we haven't allowed a fluidity to our own ability to take in information. And in a lot of ways, we've, ada- we've abandoned humility that's required to say, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe your perspective actually will inform my perspective. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But when I see that your perspective might eradicate or change mine based on valid truths, based on a valid information, if my identity is associated with that belief, totally. I will do anything to guard it. Exactly. And, and so I do think it's an inside job. I think it's the recognition of our own biases, the recognition of where we um, – have beliefs. Like I have a friend named Louis Alaro who says that we should live as if one of the five core pillars that we base our identity upon, we should always live as if one of them is dead wrong. And it's usually the one that we cling to most. And I've always loved that because I've realized like I'm prone to also wanting to be right. And, you know, I'm quite outspoken. And I've had to learn in the last two years as I've explored this subject, how to build a bridge, how to, if someone tries to put me in a left or a right or a blue or a red or a pro or an ant, then I'm like, none of those labels apply to me. Like, I'm not going to participate in that anymore. I actually want to understand. And curiosity is really the solution, because there's times when someone has a differing mm. opinion to me that I don't want to know more about their <laughs> opinion, but I'm no, I know that that's actually the path to progress. I've thought about this myself a lot and how it feels to me like people that are really not open-minded and not welcoming of other thoughts is especially when it's based on the, the foundational stuff like religion or politics or family or core right. beliefs or whatever, how you grew up is that there's like a subconscious awareness that it's the house of cards that will fall. Once one of those comes one one of those foundational elements now you believe isn't true anymore. It, it sort of subconsciously implies that what else is wrong, you know, everything like, isn't that because the moment you even start questioning things relationally and what you were taught about relationships, it is the gateway to recognition that you were taught everything, generally everything, and most of what we're taught is bullshit. And yeah. when, when that was my gateway, I mean, I was a pharmaceutical rep. So wow. talk about breaking down my house of cards. It was Just like- slinging Viagra left and right. <laughs> you know, I never sold Viagra, but I sold 
pretty much everything else. And I worked in the <laughs> industry. Like an hydrocodone, for... <laughs> left and right. <laughs> <laughs> I sold a lot of different things. But when I started to study relationships and emotion, I started to see that so much of inflammation was due to emotional dysregulation and high conflict relationships. And I thought, oh my God, I've been selling and promoting and developing these disease states that I'm not saying they don't exist. Right. What I am saying though, is that I was selling things that were to treat essential states and symptoms that are actually associated usually with trauma, usually with dysregulation, usually with emotional suppression. Yeah. And I start to see so Agreed. much of, right, like we're not talking about the core things. And I mean, having worked in that industry and then studied psychology and human behavior, it just made the last two years of my life be like, I can't not see what I see now. And right. um, what did also, it make? I mean, like the last couple of years, having that kind of contrast, like what, what, what was your, what was your opinion and, and, and observation of the last couple? Well, you know, originally, you know, I was probably like a lot of people. I looked at what was coming in the news. I saw people falling on their faces and I'm like, this shit's going to get real. Like, I don't want to get whatever is this magic fainting disease. Um, and then as I saw it sort of permeate through or, or move through society and I started to read the studies because I had been trained to look at that kind of stuff. Mm. And I was making my own risk assessment and looking at it. And I was reading the studies and I'm like, hmm, like this doesn't make sense that that we're sort of this absolutist about everything. Like this is interesting how the, the messaging is changing. And I used to sell a product actually that used the test that they used, PCR test. And so that was a red flag for me because I knew that you couldn't use it for diagnostic purposes. I knew how the test worked. So that was a red flag for me. And then when I saw the way the clinical trials were being set up and the claims they were making based on the clinical trials, that was a red flag for me. And I'd say the greatest red flag was how I saw public health begin to moralize behavior and use language. Like I was watching them say they did the right thing, um, you know, saying that getting the, the sure. V, I don't even want to use the word because I know it flags everything, which how big of a red flag is it that you can't even use a word anymore? Right. Um, okay. But what I saw was, I'm from Canada, so a lot of the language was that I saw was very much like, Canadians did the right thing. They did this. They did this. And I just started to see like you're a selfish person if you don't, if you don't lock down, you don't. But I also saw all the research on lockdowns and I'm like, well, this is a red flag. There's no research to show that these work, but yet we're going to, I can understand two weeks. Let's sure. But as soon as it kept going and then the total gaslighting of anyone who had any medical person who had an oppositional view, who had credentials, mm -hmm. but no longer was credentials the source of status, it was actually agreeing. Any questioning I had about taking it myself, which I'm not against any of it. Someone, I don't care what people choose. I was instantly called anti. And that was, I was like, wait, I'm not anti. Like, can I, anyone who had a side effect was gaslit and denied. All these things together were just, I was just like, what the fuck is happening? And, you know, I'd look at it I don't, it's a mess. Like to me, it's a mess because I've just watched this psychological manipulation that's been occurring through language and, and moralization. And 
uh, it's really made me very curious to understand that human behavior on such a deeper level, probably more so to just understand how, you know, you can exist in relationships with people who have totally different views and still love them. I think that's so important. And I didn't feel like that was true. So what's kind of the macro of this? Like if, I mean, I'm guessing that you probably might look at this from a more macro perspective, like what's happening with the planet, with humans, with consciousness, like, do you have an opinion of like, (laughs) of the, of the, 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 are we in some kind of alchemy on our way to something? You know, I, I, I think it's easy to fall into sort of the gloom and doom, uh, especially if we're consuming media. You know, I think one of the important things that we need to really take responsibility for is the information that we're consuming. Mm -hmm. You know, we forget that platforms like social media are, and media in general, are literally designed to keep your attention. So they're designed to enrage you. They actually monetize your attention. So their best interest is not your mental health. Their best interest is your attention. And however they get to keep you is emotionality. It's really emotional extremes. Are you enraged? And are are you following information that agrees with your perspective? And so, I mean, I think from an optimistic perspective, I think that what is true of nature always is something greater is being formed. You know, I think that systems that have been held together and motivated by profit are to a lot of people, it's becoming pretty obvious Mm -hmm. that those motivations are being a priority. And we've done this with the planet and we've done this, you know, where we just keep extracting from the planet and we don't consider the long-term outcomes and it's all for more and more and more and more. And it's like, when will we get back into harmonious relationship with the planet? And we extract, but we don't restore. And I think it's indicative of how we do relationship. And so, you know, much like you said, it it all starts with the self. And then when you change your own behaviors, you instantly change every single relationship you're in. Yeah. And then all those relationships are invited to deepen and change or not. And I have been challenged in the last two years where I have felt and I'm not saying this as a victim, but rather an observation of my experience, is that I have felt like my perspective was seen as wrong or bad or people couldn't love me because I didn't want to choose to get a medical intervention. Mm-hmm. And I thought, that's so interesting. Like, mm-hmm. But what it's really taught me is that I also started to other the people I felt othered by. And so I started to create the same divisiveness that I was feeling hurt by. And so I had to do healing to say, mm. you know, there's a quote that says, um, if you draw a circle to exclude me, I'll draw a bigger circle to include you. And that has been really sort of a foundational intention in my days to say, I, I forget where it comes from the saying, but it, before you say anything or do anything or create anything to ask yourself, is it useful and is it kind? And I think I only asked, is it useful? And I think a lot of the ways where I wanted people to understand the pain I was feeling, um, some of the like memes I'd share or something weren't necessarily always kind. They were like, you know, notice my pain. Mm. And no progress is uh, held by using the same energy that the pain was created in. Amen. I think that's so true. 
I think you just gave us a lot of really good advice. And I think that, uh, you know, this sort of parallel between you and the self, you and the, you and a family, you and a relationship, you and the planet, you and people that you don't agree with you and other institutions. And, um, you know, it starts at the self and then it just spirals into all the others. And let's hope that we're in this beautiful new spiral from where we were into a more open space where we can hear each other. I love that. You know, I think one thing that I've learned in the last couple of years, especially, is that pretty much everybody is operating from a space of love. And how we protect ourselves from hurt and even the strategies that we use to try to get love are not always healthy. Um, But that's usually the intention. And so Mm -hmm. when we can start to see that as the intention, then we don't villainize the other, but rather start to have compassion. And, you know, the compassion for what they're doing or their thoughts or beliefs actually has compassion for ours, especially the ones that, you know, we have difficult or challenging parts of ourselves that we have to have compassion for and we have to be willing to excavate. So, you know, something deeper is being born. How do you feel about it? So I've used this example of cymatics of um, patterns from frequencies emerging from sand or whatever they, you know, water, any, any kind of soft substance. And the, the pattern will have to go into disarray and complete a completely a complete mess before it can shift and transition to the next higher octave or frequency or more complicated pattern and that we're in that transition right now and it's almost like you have to kind of pull apart and before things can kind of go back or find their find their homeostasis again um it's like kids testing a boundary, you know, to see where they can see where it actually should land. Um, I think that there's a lot of boundaries being tested right now and <laughs> that we're in this sort of dismantling of, of the pattern and we will reemerge at a higher frequency with a more complicated pattern that will serve us all so much better. Agreed. So agreed. And <laughs> so our work individually is to um, move ourselves to that higher frequency. Yes contribute to that pattern with yourself and honoring the integrity of why we came here and what our own potential is, you know, because so many of us don't honor the call. We don't want to listen. We ask for a message from God. Not that one though. You know, we, not that, not that, you know, and it's getting into integrity with our potential. That's everything. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much. This is a beautiful conversation to the beauty and the pain of alchemy. (laughs) Yeah, the cooking, the Mm -hmm. cooking. Yeah. Mm. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the Pretty Intense podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you heard today and you want to hear more, please click on the subscribe button.